Section 9 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. I have a YouTube channel under the same name, Morgan Scorpion. Chapter 3, The Ottoman Conquest, by J.B. Bury, Part 1. In the middle of the fourteenth century two powers which had recently sprung into unexpected prominence were closing in upon Constantinople from the west and from the east. But in the race for the stronghold on the Bosphorus the competitor, which might have seemed to have the best chances of winning, suddenly fell out. With the death of Stephen Dushan, the ill-consolidated empire of Servia collapsed, his successors were ciphers, whereas Orkan, the sultan of the Ottomans, handed down a well-disciplined state built on a strong foundation to a line of eminent princes. Under him the Ottoman Turks won, 1358, their first foothold on European soil by the occupation of the fortress of Gallipoli, somewhat less than a century before Mohammed II captured Constantinople. It was not long before Orkan's son Murad I had crept round and conquered the eastern half of the Balkan Peninsula, cutting off Constantinople from Christian Europe. For the first time since the days of Darius and Xerxes, Thrace passed under the sway of an Asiatic power. Often, as the hosts of Sassanid kings and Saracen caliphs had lined the shores of the dividing straits. If the conquest had resembled in character the old Persian conquest, if the inhabitants had been required only to pay tribute to a distant ruler and receive his garrison in their cities, the lot of these lands would have been light. But they were taken into full possession by their new lords, and oriental nomads of an alien and intolerant religion were planted as the dominant race amid the Christian population. The circumstance that the Ottomans were nomads, they were a clan of the Turkish tribe of Oghuz, gave their empire its significance in the history of mankind. In the perpetual struggle between the herdsmen and the tillers of the soil which had been waged from remote ages on the continents of Europe and Asia, the advance of the Ottomans was a decisive victory for the children of the steppes. This feature of their conquest is of no less fundamental importance than its aspect as a victory for Islam. How the Ottomans were caught in the tide of the Mongol invasion and their power almost ruined, how they recovered under the prudent guidance of Mohammed I, how the wave of conquest once more rolled on under Murad II, until a seal was set upon their European empire by the capture of Constantinople, all this has been told by Gibbon. The story is here taken up in 1453. For a moment it was not clear whether the new lord of Constantinople would be content with a suzerainty over the neighbouring lands which had once been provinces of the Roman Empire, or would reduce them to the condition of provinces of the Ottoman realm. The princes of the Peloponnese, the despot of Servia, the lords of some of the island states of the Aegean, forthwith offered their submission. Mohammed soon showed that he would not acquiesce in a system of vassal states paying him tribute as overlord, but aimed at compassing the complete and immediate subjection of the Balkan peninsula. 
a typical oriental conqueror he was driven on by the true instinct that it would be fatal to stand still or abandon aggression he believed that it was the destiny of his people to spread the religion of the prophet over the whole earth and the task of his life was to further the accomplishment of this end his next successors worked with varying vigour in the same direction and the ottomans throve so long as they conquered but it was constant success in war that quickened and strengthened the frame of their state and the honour in which limits were set to territorial advance marks the beginning of a rapid decline the nature of their institution as we shall see demanded war mohammed first turned his arms against servia this step was determined by servia's geographical position lying on the road to hungary for mohammed saw that hungary was the only country john hunyadi the only leader that he had seriously to fear the two western powers which had the greatest interest at stake in the east and were most gravely affected by the change of masters at constantinople were venice and genoa the genoese were accustomed to dealings with the ottomans they were the first christian power west of the adriatic that had made a treaty with them and they had not scrupled to use the alliance of the infidels against their fellow christians the genoese colony of galata sent the keys of their walled town to mohammed on the fall of the city and the sultan though he slighted their walls granted them a favourable capitulation securing their liberties and commercial rights but genoa was feeble and indifferent and feeling herself unequal to new efforts she transferred before the fatal year was over her pontic settlements to the genoese bank of st george into whose hands the administration of corsica passed about the same time but the financial resources of the bank did not suffice for the task of supporting these colonies and genoese trade declined venice on the other hand was not indifferent and her first thought was not to recover the bulwark of christendom from the hands of the moslem but to preserve her own commercial privileges under the rule of the infidel sovereign she sent an envoy to mohammed and a treaty which formed the basis of all subsequent negotiations was presently concluded by it she secured freedom of trade for her merchants and the privilege of protecting venetian settlers on turkish soil by means of her own officers hungary then was the only power that Mohammed, secure on the side of Venice, had immediately to fear. In the first month of 1454, the young and worthless King Ladislaus had assembled a diet at Buda and carried extraordinary measures for organising an army against the Turks. John Hunyadi, appointed commander-in-chief, had a host ready to take the field in spring, when George Brankovich, the despot of Servia, arrived suppliant for help with the news that the turk was advancing against his kingdom hunyadi crossed the danube and raided turkish territory while mohammed beleaguered the servian forces of ostrovitsa and semendra Smerderevo. he took ostrovitsa but semendra a stronghold of capital strategic importance for operations against servia hungary and wallachia was saved by the arrival of the magyar general and mohammed retreated a large detachment of the retreating army encountered hunyadi near kusavach no regular battle was fought a panic seized the turks 
and they were routed with slaughter. Hunyadi completed his campaign by descending the Danube and reducing the Ottoman fortress of Vidin to ashes. In the following year, 1455, Mohammed, who claimed Serbia through his stepmother, a Serbian princess, won a foothold in the south of the country by the capture of Novoberdo, with its important gold and silver mines and he spent the next winter in making large and elaborate preparations for besieging belgrade by land and water the siege lasted three weeks in july fourteen fifty six and hardly has a more brilliant feat been achieved in the course of the struggles between europe and the ottoman turks than the relief of belgrade by john hunyadi and his magyar army it was the second time that he had saved this bulwark at the gates of hungary Pope Calixtus III had sent an able legate, Juan de Carvajal, to rally the people round the general in the holy cause, but it is a Minorite brother, John of Capistrano, who shares with Hunyadi the glory of the triumph. The eloquence of this preacher, inspired with zeal against the misbeliever, could still move men's hearts to some faint semblance of that crusading fervour which had once strung Europe to madness. The greater part of the host which was collected was a tattered, undisciplined rabble, but infinite patience and energy overcame all difficulties. With a few vessels, Hunyadi broke through the chain of barks by which Mohammed had barred the save, and entered the besieged city. Though the defenders were far inferior in number and equipment, yet by valour and cunning they defeated all the efforts of the enemy, and at last forced the whole army to retreat in confusion, and with tremendous losses, amounting to more than fifty thousand killed and wounded, three hundred guns, and twenty-seven war-boats. In the first hour of delight, the victors overrated the importance of their achievement. They fancied that the Turk was almost crushed, and that but little was wanting to drive him from Europe. It could be done, wrote Hunyadi in a letter to the Pope, if Christendom were to rise up against him. But there was no chance of such a rising, and in a few days Christendom lost her ablest champion, Hunyadi himself, August 1456. Hungary, crippled by domestic feuds, without a leader in whom men trusted, receiving no support from Germany, in consequence of the hatred between King Ladislaus and the Emperor, could not follow up her victory. Presently Ladislaus died, and Hunyadi's son, Matthias Corvinus, a lad of sixteen years, came to the throne, January 1458. Meanwhile, Mohammed was taking measures for the subjection of Servia. He was helped by its domestic circumstances. After a struggle for the succession to the crown, the government devolved upon a woman, Helena, the widow of the desperate George's youngest son, and she took the strange, impolitic step of placing the country under the protection and overlordship of Pope Calixtus, who had vowed his energies to the abolition of the Turks. But this act alienated the boyars, who liked the interference of the Catholic no better, or even less, than the rule of the infidel. In 1457, Mahmud Pasha, Beglebeg, or governor of Rumilia, had overcome all Serbia, 
1458, Muhammad came himself, captured Semendra by treachery, and received the voluntary submission of many of the boyars. It is said that 200,000 inhabitants were carried from the land, whether to be trained for military service or to be settled in other parts of the empire. On the death of Hunyadi, only a single great warrior was left to fight for the cause of Christendom, standing almost alone like a strong wall, said Pope Calixtus. But it was as much as his strength could compass to defend his own land. This was George Castriotes, the Albanian, whom we are accustomed to designate as Skanderbeg, a name which always reminds us that he had been brought up in the faith of Islam and held high office under Murad II before he returned to his own religion and his own people. Beneath the supremacy of his masterful and daring spirit, the Albanian folk, which in the regions of northern Epirus preserved the old Illyrian language, was raised into transient greatness. For a brief space, an united Albanian nation lifted up its voice amid the roar of the world's tide, and admiring Europe applauded. In the warfare on the Illyrian hillsides, Skanderbeg was almost invariably successful, and a defeat which he suffered at the Albanese fortress of Belgrade, through an indiscreet concession, 1456, was avenged in the following year by a great victory over Muhammad's able general, Hamsa, who was himself taken prisoner. Muhammad was glad to make a truce for a year, and Skanderbeg was persuaded to cross over, a second Alexander of Epirus, to Apulia, to help the Spanish Ferdinand of Naples to drive out the French, 1461. On the Albanian chief's return, new discomfitures forced Muhammad, intent on more pressing enterprises, to seek a permanent peace, and the Sultan acknowledged Skanderbeg as the absolute sovereign of Albania, April 1463. But the peace was broken before the year was out. It was the Albanian who violated the contract, under the importunate pressure of the Pope and the Venetian Republic. He reopened hostilities by a raid into Macedonia, and in 1464 he won a crushing victory over a Turkish army under Balaban, an Albanian renegade. His success decided Muhammad to take the field himself, at the head of a mighty host, and lay siege to Koya, the Albanian capital. 1465. The last exploit of the hero was to render this expedition fruitless. Failing to storm the place, Muhammad retreated, leaving Balaban to starve it out. But before he left the country, he massacred some thousands of Albanian families, whom he discovered in their refuge in the valley of Tidna. Having no forces sufficient to relieve Koya, Skanderbeg visited Rome, hoping to obtain effectual help from Pope Paul II. He obtained a little money and much goodwill. On his return to Albania he found that some Venetian troops had come to his aid, and he was now able to act. But fortune relieved Koya. A chance blow wounded Balaban mortally, and the blockading army immediately retreated, leaving Albania in a state of terrible devastation. The athlete of Christendom, as Skanderbeg was called, 
died a year later at Alessio, recommending his son and his country to the protection of Venice. January 1467 For Venice his death was a serious event, as he was the buffer between the Ottoman power and her possessions on the lower Adriatic, such as Scodra and Durazzo. Henceforward she would have to do her own work here. Bosnia, which had borne its part in the fatal Battle of Kosovo Field, 1389, was inevitably drawn into the vortex. The catastrophe of this land received a peculiar character from its religious condition. The mass of the people, high and low, was firmly devoted to the Paterine or Bogomilian tenets, which Catholics and Greeks branded as Manichaeanism. It is one of that series of religions which range from Armenia to Aquitaine, including Albigensians at one extremity and Paulicians at the other, all apparently descended from the ancient heresies of Adoptianism. But the Catholics were eager to crush the heresy. Franciscan missionaries worked with all their might in the land, and some of the kings embraced Catholicism. In 1412, the Bogomils threatened to Turkize. And in 1415, they executed the threat, fighting at Usera against Hungary. When King Stephen Thomas embraced Catholicism, 1446, the Pope and the King of Hungary hoped that the false doctrines would be extirpated. In the south of the Bosnian kingdom was the large vassal state, practically independent, which had grown up out of the lordship of Klum. The voivod of this country was Stephen Vukcic, and in 1448 he received from the emperor the title of Duke Herzog of St. Sabas, whence the complex of his lands derived the name of Herzegovina, the duchy. His daughter married Stephen the king, but Stephen the duke remained true to the national faith. He seems to have entered into a sort of vassal relation to Mohammed, for, when he makes peace with his neighbour Ragusa in 1454, we find him undertaking not to attack it, save at the command of the great ruler, the Sultan of Turkey. On the fall of Constantinople the Bosnian king offered tribute, but Hunyadi's feat at Belgrade, and the success of Skanderbeg in the south, raised up King Stephen's drooping hopes and heartened him to refuse the payment. 1456. Before, however, any results ensued from his change of attitude, he made peace again. 1458. His object was to have his hands free for laying hold of Servia. In the Diet of Zegedin, the Hungarian king agreed that the despot's son, Stephen Tomasevich, should become despot of Servia and actual ruler of the little northern strip of Servia that was not in Turkish power. The position here depended entirely on holding the key fortress of Semendra. But the inhabitants of this place were reluctant to submit to the Bosnian prince imposed upon them, and when in the next year Mohammed appeared with an army, they opened their gates to him. A cry of mortification at the fall of this bulwark arose in Hungary and Italy, and the disaster was attributed to the corruption and cowardice of Stephen Tomasevich. The Hungarian king Matthias Corvinus never forgave him, but the evidence seems to show that the surrender was the act of the inhabitants of the town, done in his despite. 
Two years later, King Stephen Thomas died, hampered in his struggle with the Turk by his feuds with his vassal and father-in-law, the ruler of Herzegovina, and with the ban of Croatia, and above all by the estrangement in religion between himself and his folk. The storm broke upon his son Stephen, who, having apparently convinced Pope Pius II of his innocence in the loss of Samandra, was crowned by the Pope's legate and reconciled with the Hungarian monarch. Meanwhile, the anti-national policy of the kings was producing its effect. The oppressive measures adopted by them, at the instigation of the Pope and Hungary, towards the Paterines, alienated many of that sect, who fled into Turkey, or remaining in the country act as their spies for the Sultan, while some actually embraced Islam. Mohammed resolved to reduce Bosnia to complete subjection. When he sent an embassy to demand tribute, King Stephen, taking the envoy into a treasure chamber, said, Here is the tribute, but I have no mind to send it to the Sultan. It is a fine treasure to keep, replied the envoy, but I know not whether it will bring you luck. I fear the reverse. When, however, Stephen failed to gain any aid from Venice or from Ragusa, itself trembling at the danger of a Turkish attack, and heard of the equipment of a great Turkish army, he repented his boldness, and sent to Mohammed to offer the tribute, and ask for a truce for fifteen years. His ambassadors found the Sultan at Hadrianople. The historian of the Bosnian War, Michael Konstantinovich, who was in the service of the Turks, was there at the time, and, hidden behind a chest, he overheard the conversation of two pashas who were in the confidence of King Mohammed. They arranged that the demands of the Bosnian king should be granted, and the envoys dismissed on the Saturday, but on the following Wednesday the army was to start and overwhelm Bosnia before any aid from Hungary or elsewhere could reach it. So it came to pass and though Michael privately informed the Bosnian ambassadors of the perfidious intentions of the Sultan, they would not believe him. Having occupied the district of Podringer, Mohammed attacked the royal residence, the mighty fortress of Bobovac, and here again the special condition of Bosnia affected the course of events. The defender, Prince Radak, was secretly a patterine, though he had feigned to accept Catholicism and he betrayed the town to the Turk. The Turk rewarded him by decapitation, a strange policy on the part of a conqueror whose interest it was to encourage such treacheries. Jashur, in the west of the land, capitulated, and the king, who had fed to Kluch, surrendered to Mahmud Pasha, receiving from him a written guarantee for his life and freedom. The lands directly under the Bosnian crown were soon subdued, Stephen commanding the captains of his castles to yield, and Mohammed marched southward to subdue the duchy and Ragusa. But in this difficult country he made little way, and on failing to take the capital, Lagaj, he abandoned the enterprise. It was the Sultan's policy to put to death all rulers whom he dethroned, and, in order to release him from the obligation of keeping a promise which he had not authorised, a learned Persian mufti, with his own hand, beheaded the Bosnian king. 
it is said that Muhammad carried off thirty thousand boys to be made into Janissaries, besides a hundred thousand other captives. The Catholics who were left fled from the country, and to prevent its utter dispeoplement, Muhammad gave the Franciscans a safeguard, allowing the Christians free exercise of their religion. Henceforward, the Franciscan influence was predominant. King Matthias Corvinus made a vigorous attempt to rescue Bosnia, and in the year 1463 he drove many of the Ottoman garrisons out. But he had not made timely preparations for encountering the return of Muhammad, who in the next spring, 1464, came to recover Jadsha, the most important stronghold of all, who in the next spring, 1464, came to recover Jadsha, the most important stronghold of all. The hard-pressed place was relieved by a Hungarian force, but at the end of the year Matthias, who was besieging another fort, was constrained by Mahmud Pasha to retreat. Nothing more was done for Bosnia. A strip in the north, with a few fortresses including Jadsha, remained in the power of Hungary and gave the title of King of Bosnia to the Voivod of Transylvania, but the land as a whole had passed under Muslim rule. Herzegovina was made fully subject nearly twenty years later, 1483. All the Slavonic powers of the Balkan Peninsula were thus gathered into the Asiatic Empire, except the tributary Republic of Ragusa and a part of the Principality of Montenegro, whose recesses offered a refuge to many of those who saved themselves from the wreckage of the neighbouring countries. Stephen Kunoyevich the maker of Montenegro, had spent his life in defending his country against Muhammad's father, Murad, and had fought hand in hand with Skanderbeg. He died in 1466. His son Ivan the Black continued the struggle with indomitable spirit, though the waves seemed to be closing over his head, when, to the south of him, Albania was thrown open to the Turk by the death of Castriotes, and Bosnia was conquered in the north. When the Venetians abandoned Skodra to Mohammed, 1479, the very key of Montenegro seemed to have been surrendered. And so desperate appeared the outlook that Ivan burned Zabuljak, the city which his father had founded, near the upper end of the lake of Skodra, and went up to lofty Setanje, which has ever since remained the capital of the only Slavonic princes of the peninsula who never bowed the knee to Asiatic lords. Ivan the Black was more than a heroic patriot. To him belongs the distinction of having established at Obod the first Slavonic printing press, from which the earliest books in Cyrillic character were issued, 1493. Meanwhile Greece had been conquered, except for a few forts which still remained to Venice. The Duchy of Athens, which had passed in the previous century to the Florentine merchant family of the Acciajoli, was won. The last duke, Franco, surrendered the Acropolis to Omar, son of Turacan, in 1456. When Mohammed visited the city, two years later, he was amazed at the beauty of its buildings and the handsome keys of the Piraeus, and cried, Islam owes a debt to the son of Turakhan. Subsequently, Franco was privately strangled, on account of a plot of some Athenians to restore him. 
but on the whole Athens had reason to be pleased with the change from the rule of Catholic princes to that of the unbelievers. The administration of justice and the collection of the tribute were assigned to local officers, and the only new burden was the tribute of children. The Peloponnesus was misgoverned by the two brothers of the last Roman emperor, Thomas and Demetrius, worthless and greedy despots, whose rule was worse than the worst Turkish tyranny. Thomas, notorious for his cruelty, resided at Patras and oppressed the western part of the peninsula. Demetrius, distinguished by his luxury, ruled over the east, and his seat was in the rocky fortress of Mistra, at the foot of Mount Taigetus, three miles west of Sparta. The court officials, who were the ministers of their oppression, were detested throughout the land, which was further distracted by the hatred between the Greek inhabitants and the Albanian shepherds who had come down and settled here in the previous century after the fall of the Servian Empire. The invasion of the Turks in 1452 had desolated the land and given the Albanian herds a wider range. The Greek peasants overcrowded the towns and the most thriving traders began to emigrate. The Albanians deemed that the right moment had come for making the Morea an Albanian state. Perhaps they were encouraged by the fame and success of Skanderbeg. But there was no Skanderbeg among them to unite and keep them together, and they could not agree upon a leader of their own race. And they selected Manuel Cantas Cusenus, a noble of the family which had given an emperor to the East Roman throne, who was now ruling informally over the hillsmen of Mena in Taigetus. He adopted the Albanian name of Gin and placed himself at the head of the insurgents. By themselves the despots would have been unable to hold out in their strong places, but they appealed to Mohammed, to whom after the fall of Constantinople they had become tributary, and when the governor of Thessaly marched into the peninsula, the rebels sued for peace, 1454. The Albanians received favourable terms, for it was Ottoman policy to preserve them as a make-weight to the Greeks. But the Morea was far from being tranquillised. Four years later, Mohammed in person led an army thither to restore order, and captured and garrisoned the Acro Corinth. The enmity of the two brothers Paleologus led to new miseries. They took up arms against one another. Thomas, posing as the champion of Christendom against the Turks, and Mohammed decided that an end must be made of Greek rule in the Peloponnese. In 1460 he descended for the second time, and he did not hold his hand when policy urged cruelty. Thus, when the indwellers of Leondari a place on the northern extremity of Taigetus, overlooking the megalopolis, abandoned their town and took refuge in the hills in the citadel of Gardiki, an ill-omened place where thirty-seven years before Turakhan had built pyramids of Albanian heads, 1423. Muhammad followed the luckless people to this sequestered fort, and on their surrender they were all gathered together and slain, six thousand of them. At Calavrita, a renegade Albanian chief who had been in Turkish service was sawn in two. Here and elsewhere thousands were reduced to slavery. 
Demetrius had submitted without a blow at Mistra. Thomas fled to Corfu and ended his life at Rome as a pensioner of the Pope. It was thus that the Morea became perhaps the most miserable province in the Turkish realm. Nor can there be any doubt but that Mohammed deliberately intended this to be its fate. He unpeopled and desolated it, so that it might present no allurements to a foreign invader and have no spirit to be restless. Six maritime places still belonged to Venice, Argos, Norplia and Thermisi in the east, and Coron, Modon and Navarino in the west, to which we must add Aegina. The little town of Monemvasia, which Frankish speech corrupted to Malvoisi, on the rocky east coast of Laconia, held out for four years in the name of Thomas Paleologus, and then placed itself under the protection of Venice. 1464. The withdrawal of Genoa from the field, and the conquest of the Moria and Bosnia, followed by the death of Skanderbeg, devolved the whole defence of the coasts of the Illyrian Peninsula and the Aegean upon the Republic of St. Mark. New Phocia and the northern islands, Lemnos, Imbros, Samothrace, Thasos, had been successively conquered 1456-7, to and in 1462 Lesbos, which had become a very nest of pirates from Spain and Sicily, was annexed to the Turkish dominion. Its last Genoese lord, Niccolo Gattiluzio, was strangled. One-third of the inhabitants were enslaved, one-third deported to augment the population of Constantinople, and the rest, the poorest and the worst, were left to till the land and gather in the vintage. As bases for maritime war in the Aegean, Venice still possessed Negroponte, Candia, together with Nauplia, Romanian Naples, and had command of the islands composing the Duchy of Naxos. The inevitable war broke out in 1463, and its first scene was the Moria. Single-handed, Venice was scarcely equal to the work, and the delay of ten years made the task more arduous. Never was there a moment at which a common effort of the Christian powers of Europe was more imperatively needed never a moment at which such an effort was less feasible. The monarchs were not blind to the menace of the new and deadly ecumenical force which was hurled within range of their kingdoms. They discerned and owned the peril, but internal policy and the consolidation of their power at home so wholly absorbed their interest that nothing less than a Turkish advance to the upper Danube or the Rhine would have availed to stir them into action. The Emperor Frederick III had not remained unmoved by the fall of Constantinople, but his strained relations with Hungary, as well as the affairs of the empire, hindered him from stretching a hand to save Servia. Yet at his side was a man who fully realised the jeopardy and conceived the project, to which he devoted himself heart and soul, of stirring up the princes of Europe to wage a holy war against the infidel. This was Aeneas Silvius, Bishop of Siena, he utters his idea immediately after the fall of the city in a letter to Pope Nicholas V. Mohammed is among us. The sabre of the Turks waves over our head. The Black Sea is shut to our ships. 
the foes possess Wallachia, whence they will pass into Hungary and Germany. And we, meanwhile, live in strife and enmity among ourselves. The kings of France and England are at war. The princes of Germany have leapt to arms against one another. Spain is seldom at peace. Italy never wins repose from conflicts for alien lordship. How much better to turn our arms against the enemies of our faith! It devolves upon you, Holy Father, to unite the kings and princes, and urge them to gather together to take counsel for the safety of the Christian world. A vain idea, inappropriate to the conditions of the age, but which was to hover in the air for many years to come, and inspire abundance of useless talk and empty negotiations. The urgent words of Aeneas and a letter of the Emperor roused the Pope to an action which neither of them had contemplated. He issued a bull imposing a tithe for war against the infidel. Thus, as Aeneas himself owned, seeking to cure one evil by another. The chief interest, perhaps, of the efforts made by Nicholas and his successors to bring about an European peace, for the sake of driving back the Turk and recovering Constantinople, lies in the measure which they suggest of the distance which the world had travelled since the age of the Crusades. In the eleventh and in the twelfth, even in the thirteenth century, a religious sentiment could stir the princes and the peoples of Europe to go forth, not to avert danger, but to rescue a holy place of pilgrimage. But in the fifteenth, though the unbeliever had won his way into Europe, had reached the Danube and threatened the Adriatic, the imminent danger to Christendom left Christendom lukewarm. Except religious zeal, there was no force which could compel an European effort. With the growth of humanism, the old kind of religious enthusiasm had passed away. Pope Nicholas himself illustrated the change of things since the days of Urban II, when, at the very time of his proclaiming a crusade, he privately sent agents to the East to rescue from the deluge all Greek manuscripts they could lay hands on. There were, however, special reasons, besides the general lukewarmness, that accounted for the failure of the first papal efforts. Nothing could be effectually done without the cooperation of Venice, and Venice, as we saw, made on her own account an advantageous treaty with Mohammed. The emperor, who professed to support the idea of a crusade, was hindered from energetic action by his ill relations with Hungary. The demand for money which might have enabled the Pope to organise an armament, was highly unpopular. And not the least serious impediment was the intolerance which divided the Catholics from the Greek Church, and prevented them from feeling any true pity for the forlorn prospects of their fellow Christians in Greece and Serbia, or any sincere desire to save them. It was futile for Aeneas Silvius to say that the Greeks were not heretics, but only schismatics. They were generally regarded as worse than infidels. The only prince who might have been ready to make sacrifices, if any common action had been organised, was Duke Philip of Burgundy. In the spring of 1454 a diet was held as Ratisbon, but the essential business was deferred to a second diet at Frankfurt in the autumn and it came to a third at Wienerisch Neustadt, February 1455. Aeneas Silvius was persuasive and eloquent, 
but the meetings had no result. At the two later diets the appeals of John of Capistrano produced a sensation from which much was hoped. Like Peter the Hermit, he possessed the faculty of stirring the common folk in open-air assemblies. On the death of Pope Nicholas, the papal chair was filled by a Spaniard, Calixtus III, March 1455, who seemed to have no less burning zeal for the Holy War than John of Capistrano and Aeneas himself. He made a solemn vow to dedicate all his strength to the recovery of Constantinople, and to the extermination of the devilish sect of Mohammed. For three and a half years he wrought and hoped, but with all his efforts could do no more than send a few ducats to Scanderbeg, or float a few galleys to harass the shores of the eastern Aegean. He was succeeded by Aeneas Silvius under the name of Pius II, August 1458. While the West had been talking, Mohammed had been advancing, and in a great council, assembled with much trouble at Mantua, 1459, Pius said, Each of his victories is the path to a new victory. He will conquer the kings of the West, abolish the gospel, and ultimately impose the law of Mohammed on all peoples. The insincere attitude of the Venetians frustrated any results that might have been brought about by the assembly at Mantua. These fruitless diets and councils are a dull and dead page in history, but they represent the efforts of the European states to discuss the same Eastern question which we have seen them deal with in our own day at the Congress of Berlin. End of section 9